The following recording was produced by Christ Redeemer Church of Hanover, New Hampshire. You may find more information on the church and its various resources on the web at www.christredeemerchurch.org. Galatians 2, 1-10 Then, after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before them, privately, though, though privately before, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his um, apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Good morning. My name is Avery McQuarters, and uh, as Doug said, I'm a pastoral resident in uh, at Christ Redeemer Church in Hanover, New Hampshire. Uh, but occasionally, I do get to come and uh, hang out. I get to see Doug at least once a week, and I'll tell you this: he is a much better guitar player than chooser of football teams. Uh, <laughs> you all know his his deep loyalty to his New England Patriots, and. Uh, how that always seems to bite him in the butt, especially when I get to hang out with him. It's it's uh, it's always fun to tease him about those things. Uh, but what he he is a great uh, guitar player, and he's also a great pastor. Uh, I maybe just an encouragement for you all to know that every Tuesday we get together as a pastoral staff, and every Tuesday Doug brings you all, the New London congregation, before uh, us in prayer, in thought. We always get into these conversations about what might be. Uh, best practices or best habits for things that are going on down here. He's always thinking about how to uh, make this environment more gospel-centered, more inclusive, more encouraging for you all, and also how to draw other people in. And so though you may just get to see Doug once a week or twice a week, know that he is constantly thinking about you. He's constantly praying for you. He's constantly interrupting our meetings to talk about you. uh, And that's because he has this deep and great pastoral heart for for you all here in New London. And so I I hope that you take deep encouragement uh, from that. Uh, because he he does love you uh, with with the love of Christ, and so I'm grateful that he let me uh, give him a break this morning and, and be able to preach uh, to you all. Well, like a good uh, pastor or preacher, uh, I got my opening illustration from things I was doing last night. Uh, I was at a wedding yesterday uh, up in Burlington, and as I was at that wedding, I was reminded number one that I love weddings. Weddings are are such a great time, 
But this is a wedding that I, I think they were scraping the bottom of the barrel to invite me, honestly. This was, uh, <laughs> this was a kid who was in our youth group who I hadn't seen for a few years, and yet he was gracious enough to give me uh, an invitation to his wedding. So, of course, I went. I knew some of his family, but I didn't know a lot of the friends who were there. I didn't know his wife's uh, side of the family and friends who were there. And so I was, I was kind of alone, and that kind of gave me the opportunity to sort of sit back and make the observation that, that weddings can be just as strange as the idea of marriage itself, right? I mean, have you, have you all ever been to a wedding where you're kind of like in the periphery group and you kind of look out and, and, and you go, how does this make sense? Like, how are these two worlds, not just these two people, but their two worlds going to merge, to collide in a way that, that's good, that's harmonious? I mean, as I was looking at the bridal party for just these two people, they had, I think, 11 or 12 members each. So this is like a bridal party of over 20 people. And if you've ever had to introduce one, one of your friends from one part of your world to another friend from another part of your world, you know how awkward that can be, right? So maybe you say you have a favorite cousin and, and they're meeting a friend maybe from college or from another part of your life. And to you, they both make sense. You love both these people, but they don't know each other. And so as you bring them into a space with each other, that there can be this sort of awkward energy of like, we like him, but we don't know about each other, right? I mean, imagine that happening, but for 20 people as they come together for just a few hours. And then you think about that kind of maybe awkward energy, even kind of tension, not just for the 20 people in the bridal party, but for the 200 people that came from the wedding. They came from all different kinds of places across the country, different backgrounds, different nationalities, different races. And, and they all come and descend on this one room and they try to dance the same songs and eat the same food and, and sort of affirm this couple who they all know from different sort of life phases. And, and as we are all gathered in that room, what we can ask ourselves is, is this going to work? I mean, we sort of guess that the couple have already settled that question, that they're going to work. But is this, this larger sort of colliding of worlds, is, is this going to work? I, I think that's the kind of scene and the kind of question that's being asked in our text today in Galatians chapter 2. See, Paul is describing this scene that happens as he and Barnabas and Titus go up to Jerusalem. And I think for us, this sounds like a regular trip and just a regular meeting of people who love Jesus. Like for us, as we sit here in 2023, we go, Paul, the apostles, Barnabas, Titus, like these are all sort of like church leaders and church figures who all probably would have got along, right? We kind of group them all together. But let me try to paint a more accurate picture of what this meeting would have felt like. Okay, so you got Paul, who was a devout Jew, was sort of a hometown hero in Jerusalem. But ever since he got to know Christ, became saved, Jesus transformed his life. Now he's hardly ever in Jerusalem. And he's out preaching not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. Actually, in Galatians, in chapter 1, he says the, the first time he goes back to Jerusalem after he encounters Christ is three years uh, since, his, since his conversion. And now he's saying it's 14 years later. So in the span of 14 years, he's only been home twice. That's Paul. Then we got Barnabas, who's, who's this guy who sort of moves in and out from, from, from the different contexts. Actually, whenever anything good happens in, in the book of Acts, usually they send Barnabas to go check out and see if it's all good from Jerusalem. Then you've got Titus who is this Greek, who is not known to the apostles in Jerusalem. And, and he's this Greek who would have been very out of place in Jerusalem, and especially in this meeting, and Paul 
and Titus and Barnabas are all traveling together. And who are they traveling to? They're traveling to meet the apostles. And specifically here, Paul mentions Peter and James and John. And, and these are guys who held a lot of influence in Jerusalem. They, have, they hold so much influence. You can hear in the book of, in these verses that Paul keeps trying to sort of like give maybe a more accurate picture of their influence. It can even sound like a knock. So he keeps saying those who seemed influential. Those who seemed influential, what they were makes no difference to me. What they, you know, those who seemed influential. He also calls them those who seemed to be pillars. But why do they seem to be pillars and why do they seem to be influential? Because they were. You've got Peter, who Jesus said he would, he would build his church off of. You've got James, who is Jesus's literal brother. And, and you've got John, who, who writes different pieces of the New Testament. And Paul, Barnabas, and Titus, this sort of fringe group who's been operating sort of outside of Jerusalem is going to meet Peter, James, and John in Jerusalem at a time when Christianity is very much still a Jewish religion. That's, that's the sort of meeting that is being set up here. And so though this crew is responsible for so much of the building of the, of the early church in our eyes, at this moment, as they meet in this story that Paul recounts in Galatians chapter 2, they're not very well acquainted with each other. And as they come together, the question that's in Paul's mind is, is this going to work? We all seemingly have the same job. We're all seemingly preaching the same gospel. But as we come together, is this going to work? And that's a really important question for Paul to ask and a really important thing for them to work out in this meeting because this small group that meets is a microcosm of what's happening in the church at large. I mean, the New Testament actually uses language of, of marriage when it talks about God's relationship with the church. It talks about even Jesus being uh, the groom and the church being his bride. It talks about the kingdom of God being like a wedding feast and us being brought into the family of God. And so in that day, as people were coming into the family, they were realizing how broad and how different this family was from each other. That's, that's why Paul writes this letter to the Galatians, because the more that the church grows and the more the church grows in places that it's unlikely, the more kinds of people it starts to include. And they all begin to ask themselves, is this going to work? Is this really going to work? Are we really all going to be included in God's family as a part of God's church? And if so, how? And, and I think if we're honest, we, we still ask ourselves this, this question to this day. I mean, if you're, if you're new or visiting here uh, to the church in New London, to Christ Restoration Church, you may have asked yourself that question on the way in, right? H how's this service going to go? And, and are these people who are here at Christ Restoration Church going to accept me? Am I going to have a good time at this service? Am I going to feel like a part of the body of Christ here in Christ Restoration Church? And let me just give you a spoiler alert. Yes. These are some of the best people you can find around. Right. But but you, we ask ourselves this, especially when you're new or visiting a place. If you're a longtime member of a church and, and you see visitors or new people come in, you, you may ask yourself the same question. How are these visitors going to affect the dynamic of our community, of our service? And, and what do I need to do in order to get them to stay? Right. Or if you're a new Christian, you may be asking yourself, what's what's my place in this new family that I belong to? What's what's my place in the body of Christ? What do I need to know? What do I need to do in order to make this work? Or, or maybe you're just trying to investigate and still figure out who Jesus is and if he's someone you can put your faith in. And, and you may be quite asking questions like, okay, if I do believe in Christ, if I do put my trust in Jesus, what kind of community does that land me in? I mean, there are so many people claiming to 
to, to know Jesus and to be like Jesus, but they don't all look or sound like him. And so if I become a Christian, how does it all work? Is this going to work? Me, us coming together in this kind of community. And I think what, what God says to Paul in this story and what Paul says to us through these verses in Galatians is, yes, this is going to work. And it's going to work not because of the work that we do, but it's going to work because of the nature of the gospel itself. It's going to work because of the very thing that we gather around. You see, the gospel creates a community of fellowship that reflects the freedom that we have in Christ. Let me say that again. The gospel creates a community of fellowship that reflects the freedom that we have in Christ. Maybe said another way, true gospel community confirms and reflects the gospel hope that we have. And, and that's all because of the nature of the gospel, this message and the one whom it talks about. And so as we go through these verses, I want to talk about three things this morning, three things that the gospel itself does. The gospel, I think, confirms our partnership. It preserves our freedom and it creates fellowship. Three things that I think we see in this passage that the gospel does. It confirms our partnership. It preserves our freedom and it creates fellowship. So let's talk about how the gospel confirms partnership. Notice how Paul describes himself as he approaches his visit to Jerusalem. This is not just sort of like a boring business meeting that Paul goes on. This is not one of those boring theological conferences where you just wear khaki pants and a white shirt and a blue, jay, blue blazer and, and, and some sketchers and, and sort of get into the deep weeds of theology. Maybe you like those kind of uh, things. I, I tend to think those get a little sleepy. But that's not what this is. No, Paul, as he describes his visit to Jerusalem, he's saying, number one, it's been 14 years probably since his conversion, not since the last time he was in Jerusalem. And in those 14 years for Paul, what's happened is, number one, Paul has had a lot of success in ministry. He's probably being sent here from Antioch. And at Antioch, it's actually the first place that it says that the, the people were called Christians as they loved one another, as, as Paul and others are preaching the gospel, the church is growing, which is why Barnabas gets sent out there and he confirms, hey, God's doing some really cool things. And so in the 14 years since Paul's conversion, number one, he's had a lot of success. But number two, Paul has had a lot of suffering as well. Since he became a Christian and since he started preaching, he, he's had a lot of success, but he's also been persecuted twice, once in Damascus and once in Jerusalem. He's had his life threatened and he's had to flee these places. And in the midst of his success and in the midst of his suffering over these 14 years, what's also happened is there's this new gospel that has started to swirl. See, Paul has been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ that, that as you place your faith in him, you, you receive the gift of life. And that's a free gift of grace provided by Christ himself with no stipulations or strings attached except that we obey him. But, but there's this new gospel that has started to swirl that the Gentiles who are these sort of unlikely characters who are starting to believe the Gospels, these non-Jews who can be saved through faith in Christ, but first, they have to be circumcised in order to become a part of God's family. That's this new Gospel that started to swirl. And, and Paul, as he comes to this meeting, Paul, even as he's preaching, he knows that the Gospel doesn't come with that requirement, but there's this claim that this new Gospel has the stamp of approval from the apostles in Jerusalem. And so as Paul comes to this visit, 
He's not questioning the message that was given to him. He's not questioning what the gospel is or what the nature of the gospel is. What he's questioning is, as you look down in verse 3, he says before the apostles the gospel that he proclaims, or sorry, in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, went up because of a revelation, set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to, here's why he's here, to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. That's the question that Paul is asking as he comes into this meeting. Again, he's not questioning the message that was given to him. He's not questioning the gospel itself. He's already made that case in in Galatians chapter 1. He says that the gospel was revealed to him directly because Jesus revealed himself directly. He he has told the Galatians already that the, the gospel transformed him from a persecutor to a preacher. It had turned him from someone who was trying to please man into someone who only wanted to serve Christ. The power and the truth of the gospel as Paul comes to this meeting was never in question for him, even as even as this new gospel uh, requiring circumcision was swirling around. What began to be in question for Paul as people claimed apostolic approval of this new gospel was whether he was working with or working against those he was supposed to be in alignment with. In other words, as Paul is approaching Jerusalem, he's asking the question, is this going to work? Not is the gospel going to work, but is the gospel community, is this family that God is creating in light of the gospel message being preached, is that going to work? As as I proclaim the gospel of Christ as a free gift of grace to be received by faith and people are believing it, are there other leaders with influence that are going to tear down the gospel foundation that I preached and build another that says the gospel of Christ is earned by grace to be received by faith and works. That's, that's the question that's in the back of Paul's mind as he comes to this meeting. And what God does in response to Paul's question is he sends Paul to the apostles. He sends Paul to the very people that he's questioning in the back of his mind. Look again at the beginning of verse 2. He says, I went up because of a revelation. So he doesn't say, I went up because I wanted to go have a conversation with them. This wasn't Paul's idea. This wasn't even the apostles' idea was to get together. This was God's idea to send them to each other. And and I think just maybe to pause here, I think this is so instructive for us, especially for the time of tension that we live in, in, and especially for the church. Because I think so often we're quick to retreat further either into our own theological tribes or now to even just retreat into ourselves and our technology and online church when we sense that we may not be in alignment with Christians around us. But what Paul, or what God does, excuse me, when Paul starts to ask, starts to question his counterparts, the same guy who did not immediately consult with anyone nor go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before him when he got saved, what God does to, to Paul when he starts to question his counterparts was to send him to the people he was questioning. And now I'll say this full of hypocrisy. I'll say this as one who struggles with this. But I wonder how many conversations that we run from that God actually means for our encouragement and our growth. I mean, how many times the church or the pastor or the fellow believer we work so hard to avoid because of our assumptions, the Lord is actually trying to use to strengthen our faith, not to break it. And I'm not talking a case where where there's like abuse or or blatant mistreatment of us for the gospel, but just cases where we're tempted to believe that ignorance is bliss, right? 
uh, where we go, hey, I don't know what they believe, but I don't want to know just in case it might not cause it might cause uh, frustration or, or cases where we're tempted to assume, assume the worst and not the best. Hey, I, I see them and they worship a little bit differently or I hear them in Bible studies and they interpret things a little bit differently or I watch them operate in community and they operate a little bit differently. They, they probably believe this about God or they probably believe this about the gospel and I don't want to get into it. And so I'm just going to retreat further into my tribe and not actually have a conversation with someone who might actually uh, add to me, who might actually encourage me who might actually complete my picture of the gospel and who jesus is i mean that's that's actually my story and not again by by choice but by force uh when i was born into the church born and raised in the church and i was born in in a uh, sort of stereotypical black southern baptist pentecostal church called friendship missionary baptist church we had church for three hours every sunday and then we had church for another two hours on sunday night then we would have church on wednesday and we would have prayer on these other days, right? And that's the church that I was raised in and grew up in. When I was in middle school, I went to uh, Catholic school for the first time. And let me tell you, when, when mass got over in 45 minutes, I was like, are we taking a break? <laughs> like, like, this is just intermission, right? Like, this is just to go get, like, some water, use the bathroom. Like, we're going to come back and, like, do something together, right? And I was like, no, it's over. We've done all that we needed to do. Uh, in that time, I get to high school. I'm still at this Catholic school. I go to a non-denominational church that is now a, a mega church that's still different from the home church I grew up in. Come to Dartmouth, I, I end up at Christ Redeemer Church. And the first time I was ever at Christ Redeemer Church, I actually walked out before the sermon started. So I get there. Maybe I told you guys this story. I get there uh, <clears throat> and I see this man, this woman who's singing, and another woman with a French horn. Now, I had never ever seen a real French horn in real life. I thought it was just like one of those things they put on pictures on the music class just to give you something to memorize. But this lady had a real French horn. And as worship started, she started blowing it. And I was like, there's no way. <laughs> and so they, they have, we have this time in the middle where you can sort of rise, greet your neighbor, and the kids can go. And what I did, I got up and I left. Didn't even give the sermon a chance because I was like, what is this? There's, there's, no, there's no way I'm going to stick around here. There's no way I'm going to go to church at this place. And now here I am, can't get away. Right? Even in the, the sort of break that I took, 2019 to 2021, went down to Atlanta. I go to Reformed Theological Seminary because I'm at a Christ Redeemer church that is says it's a reformed church so I, I don't know what that means so i'm going to go to reformed theological seminary learn all about presbyterians and all the lovely things that they sort of do and how they worship and end up uh, working for a pca church for a while so this this sort of hodgepodge of of theology of people who do church very differently uh, uh, from a place sort of where we have in church for three hours to a place where they have church for 45 minutes to a to a place where it, where it's all sort of experience to a place where it's all sort of theology and and what ended up happening in that time was i was tempted to go i don't belong here i don't uh, this can't work i i'm i'm not one who can uh sit here, let alone contribute to a space like this. And all along, the Lord didn't use that these places to break my faith or push me away from him, but actually to strengthen it. And, and, I, and that's exactly what's happening to, to Paul in this story. And I wonder if that's a part of what God wants to do with us. But, but why is that kind of partnership possible? How, how is that possible for me? How is that possible for us? Well, it's because of the nature of the gospel. 
I mean, look at how Paul talks about what they begin to realize as they come together. Look in verse 7. He says, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. Verse 8, he says, he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Verse 9, he says, James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. So what they do as they come together in this meeting, and Paul is trying to figure out, is this going to work? They don't sit around and talk about theology that sounds good or makes sense to them. They sit around and talk about what God was doing in and through and to them. They talked about the message they were entrusted with, how God worked through them, and the grace that was given. And, and so you can imagine as Paul comes to, to, to this meeting and he sets before them the gospel, what he's not doing is sort of giving them a, a here's my, my, my tulip. Do you all believe this too? No, what, he, what he's saying is, hey, God knocked me off my, Jesus knocked me off my horse one day. And I was blind, but I, I ended up hearing his voice, believing the gospel, and now here I am preaching the very people I was persecuting. I, I walked into a town, and I sort of set before the Jews the gospel, and, and some of them believed, but they rejected it. And so I set it before the Gentiles, and, and they, the Holy Spirit just started to do things. And Peter chimes in, and he goes, yeah, actually, one day I was just sitting in this guy named Simon the Tanner's house, and these people come knock on the door, and they ask for me. I end up at this dude Cornelius' house who is also a Gentile. And as I'm preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit falls there too. And, and, and they all get baptized because it just seemed like that's what the Lord was doing. Because again, that's the nature of the gospel. It's not about what, we, what seems right or what seems good to us, but what God is doing and how we are going to respond to it. The gospel is not our theology first. It's news about Jesus and what he's done. And, and, we, and we take that and, that and we respond to it. Because the gospel is a message about an event and a person that moved towards us first. And so we, the Christian community, can never create the gospel. We can only affirm or deny it. But as we affirm the gospel, as we affirm what God is doing in and amongst us, the affirmation of the gospel becomes a confirmation of partnership. See, Paul gets his question answered. Is this going to work? And God answers as he sets before them the gospel. Yes, this is going to work. You and the apostles are, are preaching are along the same lines of the gospel. You are not estranged from each other. You're not working against each other. You are working with each other because you're both centered on the gospel. Look in verse 6. He says, and from those who seemed to be influential, he ends it by saying, those who seemed influential added nothing to me. And because they added nothing to Paul, uh, this this man Titus, who 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 seems to be just sort of this test case, this this silent guy who uh, everything kind of hinges on what we do with Titus. Are we going to circumcise him or not? And he says in verse three, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. Why? Because they were partners. Because they were both founded on the gospel. It's the same gospel. And, and so as we again come into rooms like this, as we go out into the world, and we're just like. Who are our partners? Is this going to work? I, I see the Lord doing things over here. I see the Lord doing things in, in, in these people's life. Is this going to work? Are we all a part of the family? Part of how we answer that question how, and part of how we understand God's yes is that we just set before each other 
the gospel we believe and watch God at work in and amongst us. Con affirming the gospel confirms our partnership with one another. But everybody isn't a gospel partner, right? And the gospel also makes that, that, that point clear too. Let's talk about how it preserves our freedom. See, at the same time Paul is privately meeting with the disciples, there are some people who he calls false brothers who also show up to the meeting in verse 4. And these are people who have been asking themselves the same question that Paul was. Is this going to work? Can the family of God really include people who are so different from us? But as these brothers come to the community, as they come to the meeting, uh, these brothers are different from Paul in a couple of key ways. Number one, if Paul had to be sent to the apostles, these are brothers who are breaking into meetings they weren't necessarily invited to. Look at what he says. He says uh, in verse 4, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. So again, if Paul has to be sent, these, these are people who are peering in to every meeting that's going on to see, hey, what are you guys talking about over there? Do you, is your gospel the same as mine? What are you guys talking about over there? And if Paul, the second uh, major difference, if, if Paul was trying to let the question of is this going to work be answered by presenting the gospel, these brothers were trying to answer the question with their own biases and agenda. But their, but, but their answers to the question of, of what to do about God's family was not so outrageous, notice, that they couldn't gain access to this meeting of church leaders. And, and so I think what's so important to keep in mind as we highlight how these, these false brothers may be different from gospel partners is that even though they're different from Paul and different from what he was trying to do, they, they weren't so different. They're not outright heretics or, or atheists or non-believers. So they weren't walking around saying only Jewish people could become Christians. And they didn't come to the meeting and question if Jesus died for the Gentiles too. No, they came to the meeting affirming what we would say is Christian faith with just one extra stipulation. Again, they said if a Gentile was to put their faith in Jesus they had to be circumcised in order for God to truly accept them. And, and to our ears, it sounds so simple. Like I think a lot of times we can read through the New Testament, especially maybe non-believers or new Christians can go, what the heck is up with this circumcision thing? Why, why was it such a big deal? It, it's so harmless. And, and especially if it would contribute to the harmony of the body, what's the harm in sort of giving over to this one extra stipulation? Well, it's because of what's underneath the idea of that taking root, the, the idea of that being the true gospel. See, censoring anything else other than Jesus for our salvation takes away from and is not the gospel. What these brothers who come to the meeting reveal as they speak is they don't worship Jesus. They worship themselves and their cultures in the ways that Jesus seemingly affirms both of those things. I mean, you can imagine them in that meeting asking the question, if we are what God's family looks like, why wouldn't anyone else who comes to be a part of God's family have to look like us? Again, if, if we, the Jews are the people who have, have the word of God, Jesus came to us as a nation, he died on the cross, of course, for the world, but, but, but if he came and looked like one of us, why, why wouldn't these other people who don't look like us have to become one of us? And do you hear how that question is different from the questions that the disciples and Peter are asking each other? 
See, Peter and the disciples are asking them, asking each other about the things that were happening to them. Again, the grace given to them about what they've been entrusted with, about how God was at work through them. But these false brothers were asking why what God was doing wouldn't fit into their reasoning and what made sense to them. And isn't this what we're all tempted to do when we think about how to bond a group of vastly different people together? I mean, even think about at a wedding. I mean, again, you got these two worlds colliding. You got these two vastly different groups of people uh, uh, coming together. And so, what do we? How do we? How do we merge these two people? Well, we we put on music and we all dance together, or or we try to come around something else like a food or or, or clothing and things of that nature. We we all we all have this tendency to 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 tend towards uniformity. But even me, as I was sitting there last night, you know, like uh, I was driving away, they were playing some music that was not my favorite to dance to last night. Let me just say that. The DJ was amazing. Like, the song choice was just a little bit iffy, in my opinion. And, and on the ride home, I was riding home with a few other people. And, and what we got into was like, well, what would you play at your wedding? You know, and we started playing all these songs. And, and then my songs didn't make sense to them. And their songs didn't make sense to me, right? Even the things that we think would bind us together... Uh, at the end of the day, they, they all have limitations to them. As we think about, again, bonding a, a, a group of different people together, what we tend to do is we pick a standard for everyone to work towards that makes sense to us. And, and we have that same tendency when it comes to operating in the family of God. We tend to attach our connection and our judgment to each other based on how alike other people are to, to us. And we can do this in subtle and not so subtle ways, right? So, so what does that look like as we come into community? Well, is there an energy, like, where's the energy in the room? And if I'm an extrovert and I love to lift my hands and worship and I love to be expressive, well, who else is doing that? I want to go sit next to them. I want to go be with them. I want to have conversations and go, wouldn't it be so nice if everybody in the room would lift their hands and be more expressive and we could, you know, play more instruments and things like that? Or if you're on the other side of that and, and there's somebody lifting your, their, their hands or, or, or going crazy in worship, we go, well, I'm going to sit on the other side of the room, right? And wouldn't it be so nice if we just toned things down? And wouldn't it be so nice if we got back to some hymns or, or got back to different things and sort of scaled things down, right? Those, those subtle ways in which we connect and even judge people according to how alike they are to us. But those, the, we can do those things in subtle ways and in not so subtle ways too. We, we hear and we see different groups of Christians aligning themselves based on race, based on different uh, th- uh, theological views that are sort of secondary issues. We see them uh, basing off of political uh, identities or, or, or regional identities, right? The, the quickest way to ensure harmony is uniformity for people to become like us. But at the end of the day, though we pose that as gospel partnership, Paul says that's not partnership, that's slavery. Again, go back to verse 4. Because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Whereas Paul sees the apostles as partners, he sees these false brothers, though the gospel is close enough to get them into the meeting, though still not the same gospel, he sees these false brothers as, as, as not partners, but offering up slavery. And, and that's dangerous for a couple of reasons. Number one, because we can lead other people astray when we do preach these subtle or not so subtle false gospels. But here's maybe why I'd say it's, it's actually more, uh, more dangerous or, or maybe what we, we need to pay more attention to. It actually excludes us from real and true gospel community. 
So as Paul and the apostles are, are, are meeting and sort of exchanging the gospel and what God is doing, these false brothers come in. They end up getting, what does he say? Uh, in verse 5, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. And so what's, what's even more dangerous than them going out and propagating this false gospel is actually they then cut themselves off from being able to, to invest in and be a part of real and true gospel community. So as we hold on to these, these different stipulations, these different sort of subtle false gospels, what they do is they prevent us from actually being a part of what God is actually trying to do, real gospel community. But how do we find out who's, again, who's the partners and who are those who, who are offering up slavery? It's by presenting the gospel. It's because of the gospel itself that we're able even to make those distinctions. Why? Because the gospel preserves our freedom. The, the gospel reminds us of the freedom that we have in Christ. It reminds us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And as Christ died, what he did is he purchased our freedom by, by taking all of our sin, by all of the things that were necessary in order to get us to God, he uh, he he earned he he uh, purchased for us he he walked into he obeyed perfectly so that as we come to God and he asks hey on on what merit do you belong in relationship with me we get to point to Christ and nothing we don't have to do anything in and of ourselves even in the 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 call to worship this morning what what did Jesus say he didn't say come to me all who are circumcised. Come to me, all who lift their hands in worship. Come to me, all Presbyterians. Come to me, all Baptists. No, he just said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. I mean, on the cross that Jesus purchased our freedom, he offers forgiveness to a circumcised criminal on, uh, who was next to him and to the uncircumcised soldiers who were crucifying him. Even after his resurrections, he sends the disciples in, into all the nation and his charge is not to circumcise them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, but to baptize them, allow them, enter them into the kingdom. And even as we peer into heaven through John's revelation, there are people from every nation and tribe and peoples and languages. And what unites them is not their adherence to the law, but what unites them is just to the worship of the person of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus redeemed us not to look like one another, but to look like him. It's to bear him in, his image. And as we do that, we don't become just like each other. We become more of ourselves and we look more like Christ. See, just as the gospel confirms our partnership, it preserves our freedom against those who would enslave us to themselves or a different gospel. And I think what's so interesting in this meeting is that it could have been very easy for Paul to go along with this idea that circumcision was necessary. For salvation because Paul himself was circumcised. And so as these people present this gospel with just the one extra stipulation, you know who meets it? It's Paul. And it would have been very easy for him to say, sure, it gets me in. Why wouldn't we all adhere to it? But, but even though this false gospel benefited him, he understood that if the message of the gospel was compromised, it wasn't just bondage for the Gentiles and those who didn't meet it. It was bondage for everyone who named the name of Jesus. And so as Paul comes into this meeting and he's asking himself, is this going to work? Is this community and family that God is building, is it going to work? God answers it again, yes, because the gospel that reveals partners also reveals opponents. 
And it even reveals how to engage opponents to the gospel because we don't have to take matters into our own hands. Paul doesn't walk around beating people up and, and calling them out on Facebook and, and, and trying to exclude them from community. All he does is proclaim and preach the gospel. And the gospel itself preserves our freedom because the freedom that we have is in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul says, if you have a problem with the freedom that we have in Christ, it's not a problem that I can fix or solve for you. It's a problem that you have to take up with Jesus Christ himself. So let's talk about the last thing the gospel does. It, it, it doesn't just confirm partnership. It doesn't just preserve freedom, but it also creates fellowship. Again, God answers this question Paul has of, is this going to work with a definitive yes, uh, 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 both as, uh, as he reveals partners and also as he preserves the freedom that he has in Christ. And, and, and then what happens in verse 9? He says, uh, they perceived the grace that was given to me. Then they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. See, because God confirms to us the family that he's building and the work that he's doing is going to work, we can go to work. Paul can go to work. And so what Paul doesn't do is he doesn't just stay around Jerusalem and go, whew, my work is done. No, as he confirms that God is at work for his people and building his family, he goes out and continues to proclaim the message that builds the kingdom. Because God is going to be faithful to build his church in his image, you and I can go and do as he called us to do. The gospel at the end of the day is not just for the sake of exposure, who's in or who's out, who's my partner, who's not my partner. It's for the sake of encouragement and exhortation. That's why Jesus says to the disciples, as he is raised from the dead, go therefore and make disciples, go teaching them to love God and to love their neighbor. See, this, this partnership turns into a fellowship and it pushes us to each other pushes us to uh, obey and to love God and pushes us to, to push each other to do those things. And so as, as they're sort of saying, go, you go to the uh, Gentiles and we'll go to the, the Jews, they weren't creating new rules and they weren't creating new stipulations. They were encouraging each other to do what God had already called them to do and to love one another in the process. And so as you sit here and as we think about the church at large and we ask ourselves continually, God, is this going to work? Right? A lot of tension, a lot of craziness, and a lot of lines being drawn in, in places that shouldn't be drawn. And we ask ourselves, is this going to work? What God answers, I think, through this passage and through Paul's life is yes, because he uh, confirms our partnership, he preserves our freedom, and he gives us fellowship with those who walk in step with the gospel. He does this because the gospel points us to, to, to Christ, who cannot fail whose purposes cannot be thwarted, whose kingdom has no end, and, and in the end, he is victorious. And so as we walk in line with the gospel, we walk with, with confidence, and, and, and with confidence that we will uh, be able to, to find others who, who we'll be able to walk with, to push each other to love God, and to love our neighbor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for the encouragement that we find in it that... Uh, your church is yours, Lord, that though you give us the opportunity to see your kingdom spread, that you give us the opportunity to build each other up with love, Lord, at the end of the day, this is your work that you do by your spirit. And when we get discouraged and when we have questions of, are we running in vain? And is this thing really going to work? You confirm it through the gospel.
And so I pray, Lord, this morning that you would help us to remember what you've done, your work on the cross, uh, so that we might be encouraged to go, maybe to go to, to people who uh, it, it, we may have questions about or, or, or may cause us uh, to, to question if they're really partners. But more importantly, I, I pray that it would cause us to go and to do the work that you have called us to do, to obey you, Lord, so that we might see your spirit at work in others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.